Uh, Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the first ever Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager here at Rangely, and with me is my co-host and the founder of Rangely Capital, Chris Demuth. Uh, This is going to be a weekly podcast where once a week, Chris and I will grab a beer or a drink after the market closes, and then we'll start discussing some of the things we've been looking at in a bit looser of an environment than most of our writings and kind of other public appearances. So with that, Chris, uh, what are you kind of looking at this week? Well, Andrew, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, (laughs) And... uh, uh, I'll, I'll try to be cognizant of this being for entertainment and not investing purposes, but I think I've had more investing than entertaining purposes this week, so I'll <laughs> uh, see what I can do. Um, we've, been, we've been having a busy week. Uh, one of the things uh, close by that I've been thinking about recently is First Niagara, which is our uh, local bank. Uh, their uh, former uh, CEO who kind of helped put together the company is a, a friend and somebody whose career has kind of tracked mine in a number of different points. Um, but they are for sale. If anybody's interested in a nice bank in New <laughs> England, uh, uh, I think uh, you could buy it. Uh, speak with their bankers at J.P. Morgan. Uh, I didn't check the close, but it's trading somewhere slightly north of uh, $10. I yep. think it was $10.60 or so. Um, but if you look at it, um, there's a couple things to note. Um, it's worth somewhere between 12 and $13. If you wanted to bid, you could come up with a number that's a little north of 12 And you're talking if you're bidding kind of as a strategic other as bank acquirer. And yep. then this yep. really comes down to gutting their costs. You know, if you could, uh, if I was going to bid, I'd claim I'd take out only 25% of the costs. I would look at a multiple of tangible book value and I would try to get it for as close to 12 as possible. If I was selling it, I would say, no, you can take out a lot more costs than that. Yep. I would uh, point to the uh, core deposit premium and I would want to get a 13. And uh, why don't you uh, kind of walk our listeners through, what, why is a core deposit premium important? What is a core deposit premium? Um, you know, there's just different ways of looking at the uh, the same value. You, yep. know, you can uh, really think about it at this point in terms of what it's worth in a larger institution. And there's some numbers that are going to be changing a lot. I, I would point to two things uh, over the past year um, that really are ways you think about it when it's a standalone that change when it goes into a deal. Uh, and one case that you can look at and track very carefully is um, this is a roll-up. It's the result of a bunch of mergers. Absolutely. There, there are a bunch of costs that are in it right now. There are also a bunch of capital expenditure needs. So if you look at their technology, for example, um, there's a big expense uh, a source associated with some core spending that uh, four quarters they intended to uh, ha- be doing uh, in four quarters. And three quarters ago, they planned to do three in three quarters. Two quarters ago, they planned to do in two quarters. A quarter ago, they're going to do in a quarter. And now they've just cut. Yep. And so something has changed. Uh, what uh, One 
reasonable interpretation would be that it, this is something of no value in particular to a buyer, uh, so they're cutting that out. Uh, the other thing I would say is the management, um, their uh, CEO, uh, Gary Crosby, has been an advocate of their value as a standalone, and he kind of has robustly defended that they were going bravely into the future until today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you and I both, we think about, about this similarly. When you've got a management team that, in this case, they've consistently said, we're going to make this IT spend, we're going to make this IT spend, we're going to make this IT spend, and they say, we're very valuable standalone, we're very valuable standalone, we're very valuable standalone. And then they change all of a sudden. I know that raises a bunch of red flags where I'm like, oh, something interesting could be going on here. Do you something, want to talk about that? Something interesting is happening. I mean, the bank is worth, if things go horribly wrong from here. I mean, do a threefer. Every yeah. bidder walks away, and I think there are active bidders yeah. that are well into the process, and the bank has a horrible quarter, and the market implodes. I mean, if everything goes to pot, uh, the stock's worth at least $9. Yep. It's probably worth more than that, but give that a 10% chance. And the bids right now, I think we're talking about 12 to, 12 to $13 um, is pretty likely. But you know, when you when you when you look at that, whatever the future holds, and we're we're counters, we're not soothsayers, uh, but something is happening right now. Uh, his quote this week was uh, a kind of long, kind of constipated sounding pause <laughs> when he was asked about what was happening. And this is a question he always answers, and he said, "Well, we work very closely with our board to assess different strategies to enhance shareholder value." Uh, this is an ongoing process and it is now being looked at in the context of this very difficult operating environment. Yep. Um, so I don't know what that means. I think that means he's going to sell. Um, so That's great. That's great. And I know you do a lot of work. Uh, we've talked a lot before about how kind of maps fit together. You know, if I have a branch in the market and you have a branch in the market, that might not be quite as valuable as if I have a branch in one market and you have a branch in a market I don't own. So. Who do you think are kind of the two most likely acquirers for the, the company? Two most likely acquirers for the company. I think that they're going to get a bid from New York Community. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to get a bid from Toronto Dominion. Uh, incidentally, if you're ever in a Toronto Dominion branch, <laughs> they have coin counters. Put your hand in the uh, rejects uh, slot, and there's frequently Canadian money in there. I, I usually get a dollar or two in. Uh, and in foreign currency that the machine it, doesn't accept that it spits out. If you're on the uh, streets of New York and you see someone reaching in to see if there's any coins in the payphone, it might be Chris or it could be a homeless person. Yeah, one of the two. Uh, but this is a good, good, good strategy. Uh, Huntington will probably bid. BB&T has kind of implied they won't, but they really will. Yep. A uh, Keycorp could. Uh, who will ultimately be the bidder? Um, New York community fits very well. All right. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if them. All right. Well, hopefully in a month or two, uh, this works out and we come come back on and say, you know, we called it here on the first podcast. New York community was buying was buying them for thirteen dollars a share. Yeah. So, uh, so the plan for this podcast is we'll start off with a kind of the stock of the week, what we're looking at, and then we want to move on to the article of the week. And this week, the article of the week that we want to talk about is called The Planet-Saving, Capitalism-Subverting, Surprisingly Lucrative Investment Secrets of Al Gore. It's going to be in the November issue, I believe, of The Atlantic, and it's by James Follows. Uh, yeah. So I, this article, it's a little bit on the longer side than what we're hoping to talk about for the most part, but it was super interesting to me. We uh, It hit on a lot of different points. So Chris, I kind of want to talk about 
this with you. The first, kind of the core of the article is Al Gore, his investment fund, uh, they are investing in businesses that are kind of sustainable, good for the world. Uh, and my question to you is, is this a really good model or is it kind of catching something else? So do you think you need to invest in businesses that only be that will benefit the world in order to outperform the market? Well, let me start by saying no. Yep. Uh, to answer your question, but also to give a uh, serious respect for all these different goals. I, I'm pro saving the world and I'm <laughs> pro investing. Absolutely. Uh, but these are two different topics. This is kind of chili ice cream. And uh, the, 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 the thing that is really difficult is that the metrics get to be difficult. Yeah. Uh, and having multiple mandates uh, where you're trying to make money and you're trying to uh, do things that are environmentally conscious is a little bit tricky. Uh, I think it's also tricky when you have outside investors that have, even uh, amongst progressives or amongst environmentalists, have different priorities. Yeah. Uh, and commingling all of these things, I think, th th let me caricature this a little bit, uh, the, the worst of all worlds is to say, I'm trying to make you money, and then if you fail, you can say that I'm trying to fight global warming, and then if you fail, you kind of go to this kind of fallback of your fallback and saying, well, I'm trying to be a good person. Yeah. Leave me alone. Stop asking me questions. And I think that that's usually where these things end up. Um, uh, now, the article, uh, it was a great article. I Absolutely. loved The Atlantic, and I enjoyed reading it, and I wish them well. Uh, but I would say that... Uh, they have stumbled onto the uh, fortune of an energy implosion, yep. uh, especially an almost wipeout of the market cap of the entire coal uh, industry. And, and so their numbers are looking good, and that sure did help them. I, don't, I think it's also that, plus in the past 10 to 15 years, if you think about the companies that can really benefit the world, they tend to be the companies like a Google, a Facebook, companies that are great businesses that can worry about that sort of stuff, whereas the local kind of cement producer is never going to be able to be like, oh, we want to produce cement, but we also want to save the rainforest. And I think the past 10 to 15 years has been great to kind of invest in that. You've been at the early bleeding edge of these kind of great technology companies. And I know here at Rangely, sometimes when somebody says, oh, we can't invest in something at any price, that's one of the things that we kind of look to take advantage of. Can you kind of talk about a situation where we've taken advantage of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, this could be a group that could be kind of a counterparty for us. Um, and, uh, you know, you look at sectors and all the work that we do is, is firm level, bottoms up work. It's always counting. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, they have a philosophical aversion to energy that has worked out well this year. If you had a Christian scientist fund that had an aversion <laughs> to investing in pharmaceutical companies, they would be massively outperforming for the last couple months, uh, prospectively, uh, you know, who knows. It's only coincident with the stated philosophy. It really has nothing to do with what they think they're doing, but it's worked out well uh, recently. Um, you know, I, I just think that uh, I have a hard enough time making sense simply trying to enrich the owners that Absolutely. we represent. Uh, it's, a, it's a modest but important job. And if I can make our investors very wealthy, uh, including a lot of 
progressive investors, including some people who are very top environmental donors, uh, they can take their own resources, which I hope that we are uh, helpful in yep. uh, increasing, and they can do things uh, with their own money. You know, you look, you look at, for example, the the head of Patagonia. You know, what does he do? When he wants to save a river, he buys the river. He yeah. buys all the land on both <laughs> sides, and it does a couple things. Uh, one. Uh, he is uh, using his own resources, and so using his own balance sheet, he is uh, taking advantage of what he cares about, but then also all the locals and the people who might have slightly different priorities, they get benefited too. And there's one other thing I wanted to talk about in there. So obviously they kind of picked up on the explosion of the oil markets and they completely avoided oil and everything, but there was an interesting line in there that said the 10-year average over the past 10 years, they are the second highest returning fund in the world, while they're also the least volatile, and they will only take investors who invest a $3 million minimum and have multiples of that in terms of net worth. And kind of as an investor, when you hear that combination of things, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, as far as I know in this case it's true. Uh, it certainly is are attractive combinations of uh, attributes. Uh, to answer your question, what do I think? I think of uh, Ed Thorpe going through Madoff early on, and uh, he's he's the most uh, brilliant kind of quantitative investor that I know, uh, and he instantly saw it as a fraud. Uh, yeah, he instantly saw. It, he said, "Well, this, this, this numbers are not they're uh, they're not indicative of anything in nature, investing, or reality. These are just these are just made up." Um, and uh, in in a recent account. Uh, of what happened uh, that uh, Bill Poundstone wrote. Um, the numbers were not only made up, but they were made up in the mind of Bernie Madoff. Yep. Yep. Bernie Madoff had a fealty to certain numbers that he used in his investment performance. Uh, it was all fantasy. He lied with some of the same numbers he lied when he was inventing his golf scores. Yep. So he apparently not only cheated at golf, but he cheated <laughs> at investing, uh, and in doing so, uh, to the right of the decimal point in his monthly returns and in his golf scores, 86 was the number that came up. Cool. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> a, a, many orders of magnitude more likely than it would in reality. That's great. All right, well, our last segment, and we only have about a minute for this segment this time, I think it's been a great conversation, is kind of our question of the day. Uh, if any listeners have any questions or articles they want, please send them to us, and Chris and I are happy to consider them. But the question of the day for for this week is uh, Donald Trump's obviously been in the news lately, and my question is, what do you think the odds are that Donald Trump is the next president of the United States? I think they're close to zero. I was going to say five because I think five sounds more sober right yeah. now. Uh, but there's there's a couple problems he has. One is that he's not going to get the nomination. Yep. I mean, I think the Republican nomination is going to quickly split. Really, it's four contests: the squish, the wingnut, the normal guy, and the outsider. And I don't even think Donald Trump wins the outsider subcontest. I think that uh, John Kasich might uh, beat Jeb for the squish. I think Ted Cruz is probably has a lock for the wingnut which I say with all due respect. Uh, I would say that Carly Fiorina, she's had a bad week in polls, but I think she is very well situated to be the outsider, and I think that Rubio is the normal guy. And so I think the, uh, the wingnuts then lose to the normal guy. I think the outsiders have a great... Uh, but also, if he does somehow get the nomination, then Mike Bloomberg will run for president. And if it was between a uh, unelectable Republican and a Democrat, I think Mike Bloomberg could come in and win as an independent. 
Interesting. Interesting. All right. Uh, so you don't think he's even getting the nomination? Nope. If I said the Super Bowl is the beginning of February, do you think Donald Trump will be in the lead for the Republican nomination at the Super Bowl? No. What about Christmas? Christmas is getting close. Okay. Uh, it'll probably be between those two days. So you, you think it, it's a coin flip? New Year, I, next year, beginning of next year, you think it's a coin flip? If he's I think or not. that you could buy for your entire Christmas shopping list Donald Trump memorabilia at a very deep discount to NAV. Uh, but if you don't, I think you, if you have a sweetheart, if you're, Andrew is, uh, all you ladies out there, single guy still, uh, if you're exactly dating, if somebody who is, uh, if there's somebody who is a special person in your life by Valentine's Day, I think you could get her deeply discounted Trump memorabilia for Valentine's Day. Go return the ugly sweater to Walmart and get some deeply discounted Donald Trump merchandise while you're at it. All right, well, that is all the time we have. I think we're a little bit over our limit. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Chris, thanks for co-hosting. Uh, you can follow us both on Seeking Alpha. Chris writes the M&A Daily there. I write the kind of weekly, maybe a little more than weekly, Investing with an Edge series. We occasionally post more detailed articles on stuff we're really interested in investing in. And we post our best ideas on our private members-only site on Seeking Alpha, Sifting the World. We'll see you guys here next Monday. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good one.